the 21st chapter of Revelation begins. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all, the li and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel like a jasper, clear as crystal, had great high walls with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and, as wide and high as it was long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emeralds, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, the Lamb its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life.
Thank you, Rosie and Rob, for reading this whole chapter. I was inclined to ask you actually to read the whole book of Revelation, but I relented this morning. I figured it might be a bit too long. But I also figured that um, if most of you are like me, you don't venture terribly often into Revelation, and sometimes it happens that years pass before we have read or reread certain chapters, and it was going to be useful for us to hear the whole passage. Great to be with you all uh, today, just days before Thanksgiving, great season of the year. Now, I don't know if you have heard that our friends in Silicon Valley in California over the last year or so um, have been occupied over this uh, time with a new advance in technology unrelated to the things that you would expect them to be excited and energized around, like the new Apple Watch or the DJI's fancy drones or Uber's impressive driverless cars. Instead, I gather that the valley has been consumed by the question of whether our entire existence as human beings on planet Earth is actually a computer algorithm that our life in its totality, in its very detail, is really nothing more but a life in a simulation. So it takes a few moments actually to allow this idea to sink in. But people that are really credible in so many other ways, like Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, and his counterpart Sam Altman, the president of the Y Combinator, and others, believe it so fervently that they're apparently deploying substantial resources and uh, commissioning some of the best scientists to start working on deciphering this algorithm. And it occurs to me that if these billionaires and scientists succeed in this project of deciphering the algorithm, perhaps one great thing could come out of it, that is to immediately disable the code that operates Donald Trump. You would think he is a bug in the system rather than a feature. <laughs> the Word of God comes to us this morning from Revelation chapter 21, and it is as marvelous as it is astonishing. It is perhaps, when you think about it, one of the most marvelous chapters in the whole of the New Testament because it affords an understanding of the beginning from the end. More than that, perhaps, it allows us to arrive at an understanding of everything in between the beginning and the end. It is certainly a text that unequivocally disperses notions and theories such as the one promulgated by Elon Musk and his like-minded companions as senseless and mere fancy. It is an interpretive lens for understanding important parts of God's purposes in the world. For through the description that we find at the very end in this chapter, we get answers to some of the whys or why questions in the story of redemption. Like many of you, I'm a fan of technology. Carry this thing wherever I go. 
I am a fan of scientific advances, of much of what Silicon Valley has actually bring into our, uh, brought uh, into our lives over the past two decades or so. But when in need of a lens through which to look at the world and reality, when in need of a worldview, a paradigm for arriving at answers to some of the most fundamental existential questions, such as, who am I? Where do I come from? To whom am I related? To whom do I belong? Where am I going to? I would certainly not go to Silicon Valley for a paradigm, but would rather resort to passages such as the one that we just read because it is an interpretive lens that helps us to see the genesis, the beginnings, as well as the telos, the goal of humanity and reality. I suspect that the material of this chapter is so rich that one could develop at least 10 sermons out of it, but this morning I would rather that we look briefly at two astonishing elements that emerge out of this chapter, followed by two marvelous ideas that are given to us in this text, the second of which we are going to allow to perhaps trigger our imaginations for action in the present. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, I love the picture of new heaven and a new earth, but my heart drops when I read that there'll be no longer any sea there. I love the sea. I love the ocean. I suspect that many of you do, too. How many of you are profoundly disappointed when you read that there'll be no longer any sea in the renewed planet. Only so few of you? Well, I say God cannot possibly not give us a sea or even an ocean in the new earth. Why would he leave us only with one single river that is also referenced in this chapter 21? So I tell myself, fear not, I'm quite confident there will be a sea, even an ocean, in the new earth. After all, remember, Revelation is full of symbols. And so you cannot read it and understand it literally. No wonder Martin Luther, the reformer, lamented the fact that the book of Revelation got a lodging into the canon of the New Testament because he considered it to be totally useless for the purposes of the gospel because it's full of symbols. And so this notion of no more seeing the renewed planet Earth really, I think, ought to be understood first and foremost symbolically. The sea in Scripture, but also through human traditions, literally traditions, has always been a symbol of perpetual turmoil. A gravesite of sorts. And certainly the sea or the seas and the oceans as dividers of people and land. We assume based on revelation that at the very beginnings there was only one mass of land 
following the tectonic changes that must, must have occurred after a universal flood of sorts, there was this emergence of seas and oceans parching up and dividing the land. But John himself, who is writing the book of Revelation, can also be forgiven. In fact, it is very likely that the angel comes to John with this image and this message of there in the new renewed heaven, not uh, renewed earth, not being any more seas, was related to the fact that John had been banished to this tiny little island called Patmos, surrounded by nothing else but the sea. I cannot imagine John thinking in the morning or perhaps by the end of the day relishing in the idea, okay, let me go down to the beach and enjoy the water today. No, actually, he considered the sea to be his ultimate enemy because he was confined by the sea, separated from everything else, from reality by the sea. And so the symbolic message that comes out of this astonishing point of there being no longer seas is that God will in the end, dear friends, execute an ultimate merger. He will finally unify the earth. And what a critique this is to any notions of any kind of division of people or among people. And then the longer passage, 9 through 17, we will not read it again, but just a few, ver a few letters here. One of the seven angels showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he, the angel, measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. In addition to this claim of no more sea, I find this description of heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth as equally astonishing. It's almost like a description of an enormous fortress surrounded by a great wall. Now, first of all, everyone, no one runs out of here and go and tell Donald Trump about the size of this wall lest he gets any new ideas about the wall that he intends to build along the border, our border with Mexico. Please don't do it. What especially assaults my sense of aesthetics is really the shape of heavenly Jerusalem. If you consult your Google, you will find out that 12,000 stadia equals somewhere around 1,400 miles. So this city is going to be 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. To be honest, and a bit sacrilegiously, I'm not really impressed with the shape of heavenly Jerusalem. It doesn't work with my sense of space and beauty. And so I resort again to the symbolic and the symbolism of perfect symmetry, perfect proportionality, 
perfect alignment or the message and assurance that what God is preparing for his children is going to be truly extraordinary, marvelous, astonishingly beautiful, truly what a human eye has not seen nor a human ear has ever heard of. And that's fantastic. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The new earth, dear friends, and remember, this is our earth, this same planet. This is not some kind of new abode and a new entity. Our planet will be a place of no more. No more pain, no more suffering, no more hospitals, cancers, surgeries, Ebolas, Zikas, murders, no more. But an even more beautiful message than this no more message is the fact that we're told that God will make his permanent dwelling among us, the redeemed. It's incredible. We are rapidly approaching Christmas, and here in this picture we see the ultimate fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of the promise of Christmas the promise of the divine incarnation of Emmanuel, God with us. Astonishing, isn't it? Marvelous beyond belief and human thought that the God of the universe, the creator of everything seen and everything unseen, would make our planet the center of the universe or the universes in the plural. That he would grace us and honor us to such an extent that his perennial, eternal dwelling will be with us. The embodied human beings who have gone through so much and be central or in the center of this drama of living with and in the midst of evil. You will say, perhaps the human beings who have gone through so much will deserve such a reward. But think about it, that for God to move in with us for the rest of eternity, make us the center of the universe, is really much more than compensation. It is too incredible to comprehend. Now, this passage that Rosie and Rob read for us underscores also the fact that the greatest things of God and God himself himself always come to us from the future. While that is true and the most fantastic idea, it is not an alibi for Christians to place the bulk of their Christian experience into the future. Christianity must not be postponed till the future. We cannot suspend our Christian experience until the eschaton, or the end. And this has been a major temptation for Adventism over the years. 
eschatology, as we all know, or the doctrine, the teaching of the future or the end times, has been so dominant in Adventism. Our insistence on the imminence of the return of Christ, our very name, even the name of this beautiful congregation here, Adventists, is about the future. So the, the dominant, the central reflex in Adventism is vis-a-vis -vis the future. Adventists, in a sense, live in the present, but for the future. Instead, it seems to me Christianity must be lived out fully in the present, even as our hope and our aspiration are anchored to the future. And the invitation for this sort of orientation, dear friends, comes from verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Revelation chapter 21 is, it seems to me, a great inspiration to a prophetic and transformative engagement with the world. Christianity is a, first and foremost, a prophetic religion, dear friends, but not prophetic in a predictive sense, not prophetic in the sense of foretelling future events and so on. It is a prophetic religion in the sense that it seeks to engage the world, to touch it, to transform it, to make all things new. If not entirely new, then to at least renew them. In the 1970s, now I know that to some of you younger people, this sounds like antediluvian time, 1970s. One of the greatest theologians, a Mennonite, John Howard Yoder, wrote a book, The Politics of Jesus, in which he instructs us that if Christ, the anointed Messiah, and his claims are to be taken seriously, then his faith is one that comes with some cosmic, social, and political implications then Christianity is not to be understood and lived only spiritually or in spiritual terms. Christianity is not only about personal piety if Christ and his claims are taken seriously. Jesus rather came and with himself he brought implications other than saving us from our sins. Implications that suggest that to be a member of his kingdom is about much more than aspiring to and perennially dreaming about a life of bliss in this heavenly Jerusalem. If Christ and his claims are taken seriously, then we are not allowed to dwell perennially and constantly on this marvelous picture and dreaming about living in this heavenly Jerusalem because he brought with himself a vision of a new radical social, social order for Christians to live out today in the present. Walter Brueggemann, still alive, whom I consider to be perhaps the best Old Testament theologian certainly of 20th century, if not beyond, 
has for decades now reminded us that the Christian church is first and foremost a prophetic community. And the prophetic task of this prophetic community is to imagine, to evoke, to nurture, and embody an alternative vision, an alternative narrative, an alternative consciousness, narrative and vision that infuse newness in the world at any time. Alternative vision and consciousness and narrative that are different from those that dominate and are propagated in the world and by the world. And he says, we're indeed made in the image of God. And perhaps we have no more important theological investigation than to discern in whose image we have been made. Our sociology, our politics, our economics are predictably derived from, legitimated by, and reflective of our theology. Think about it. I wish that many who contributed to the recent changes in the order of this country with implications for the order of the world would have considered this, that their, it is their theology that determines their perspectives on social matters, on politics, economics, and so forth. You see, dear friends, the Christian church does not only have a God-given mandate or imperative in the evangelistic domain, but it was also given to an equal extent a social imperative, a social mandate, an imperative to seek and touch the world and renew it. And the areas or the domains in which we could live out this prophetic social imperative are matched only by the number of needs. Consider the fact, for example, that today, by the end of this day, close to one billion people will go to bed hungry. And yet 70% of all of the grains that are produced on planet Earth are used to feed animals that are eventually harvested for meat consumption. The world's cattle alone, forget about other animals, horses, etc., etc., but just the cattle alone need massive quantity of food equal to the caloric needs of 8.7 billion people. Now, today's total population globally is 7.2, maybe going on 7.3. So the caloric equivalent of the feed, the food that we give to the cattle alone that are harvested globally, mainly for, for meat consumption, is equivalent to what 8.7 billion people would need calorically. The amount of food needed to produce just one eight-ounce steak is equivalent to 45 to 50 bowls of grain, cereal grains. In the US, if we were to reduce by just 10% the production of meat, by just 10%, more than 60 million people of the one billion people who are hungry would no longer be hungry but would have plenty to eat. Just a reduction of 10% in the production of meat. And the perversions continue, dear friends. 
over 60% of all global land deals in the last decade have been to grow crops that can be used for biofuels. How many of you come from states and parts of this beloved US of A where big SUVs are driven and loved? A few of us. Tanks of sorts. And we love to use biofuel, but we take food away from the hungry in order to have cheaper biofuel. And the rest of the 40% of the land deals or arable land typically is interacted for the purposes of building factories, shopping malls, highways, housing developments, leisure structures of all sorts. So the issue of food insecurity, considering these facts, is no longer, has not been for a number of years now, a matter of logistics or supply chains, as it was for quite a few decades, namely not being able to bring the food in the bushes of wherever where people might be hungry and are in need of food. That's no longer the issue. The issue is that the world does not have enough of food, does not produce enough of food. Well, consider the fact that two-thirds of the world's population, two-thirds, that's billions of people, could be living under water-stressed conditions within just the space of 10 years from now. As a matter of fact, there are some studies that suggest that countries that are already in, uh, in a position of high risk, like Egypt, will completely run out of water by 2025, which is not a distant future. Millions right now, today, as we speak, drink water full of pathogens, viruses, bacteria that give them cholera and all sorts of other ailments. Many of them die because of that. Or consider perhaps even more devastating statistic about the incredible inequities, staggering inequalities that the world has allowed to take hold in our world, where the richest 62 people on the planet have equivalent wealth or assets to the 50% of the poorer part of the global population, meaning 62 individuals, by the way, just six years ago in 2010, it was 388 of them. So within the space of six years, there's been this incredible concentration of wealth at the very top, from 338 to 62, who are wealthier than 3.7 billion people today. Just 62 individuals. Making, behold, I make all things new. We need, dear friends, a whole new radical ethic and a prophetic commitment and a prophetic vision for a world of greater justice, especially at times such as these, when justice is not on the radar at all of many who are in positions of influence and power. We need a whole new ethic for a world of greater justice, and this should be led by those of us who claim the name of Christ. This should not be led by the secular counterparts, dear friends. Because remember, 
If Christ is taken seriously and his claims, Christianity cannot, must not be understood and lived out in the spiritual sense alone. Inner piety, coming to church, going to church, and giving to church. No, it is a radical new social order with immense social and political implications for the now, for the present, not postponed to the future. People cannot, I know, I'm not naive enough to believe that people can bring to pass God's purposes in the present, in the midst of this world. People cannot bring to pass in the fullness the purposes of God in the world, but they can, as prophet Isaiah says, build a highway in the desert. They can temper their malice and pride and selfishness. People cannot bring to pass the purposes of God in their fullness, but they can make level the hills and the mountains of prejudice, of hatred, of deliberate and intentional scarcity. And I submit to you that our prophetic work today in touching the world and transforming the world should be seen as antecedent to as a precursor of and an announcement of the final and ultimate transformation of the world of which this chapter, Revelation 21, speaks so beautifully. May it really be so. Amen.